Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nas. Uh. Yo, yo. Life. They wonder. Can they take me under? Nah, never that. Nah, yo. Yo, I come from the housing, tenement buildings, unlimited killings, menaces marked for death. Better known as the projects where junkies and rockheads dwell. Though I owe to it my success, the survival of the fittest every day is a child. I would think I'm a part of USA and be proud. Confronted with racism, started to feel foreign. Like the darker you are, the realer your problems. I reached for the stars, but I just kept slipping on this life mission. Never know what's next. Ancient kings from Egypt up to Julius Caesar had a piece of the globe, every continent. Yo, this Asia. Africa, Europe, France, Japan, Pakistan, America, Afghanistan, yo, this Protestants, Jews, Blacks, Arabics, call a truce, world peace, stop acting like savages, no war, we should take time to think, the bombs and tanks makes mankind extinct, but since the beginning of time, it's been men with arms fighting, lost lives in the towers and Pentagon, why then, must it go on, we must stop the killing, tell me why we die with all God's children. So that is the sound of Nas uh, featuring Amory uh, and the track Rule, which has Tears for Fears, uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World sampled in there. And it's an appropriate track because uh, this week on Uprise Radio, which you are listening to, uh, we're talking about, I suppose, geopolitical tensions and the rise of China um, and the way that's been received here in Australia uh, and the kind of media coverage that uh, this rising power uh, is getting. So my name's Jackson and I'm here in the studio with James. Hello, James. Hello, everyone. And um, thanks, Jackson. I think, yeah, it's, I guess one of the things we're going to be looking at is a bit of the kind of uh, soft power um, aspects of China's rise. And um, yeah, it, I think it's a, a great uh, track to bring us in because who doesn't want to rule the world? <laughs> Uh, we're also joined by Maddie in the studio, uh, who is a member of Socialist Alternative mm-hmm. and also has spent time in China uh, and Malaysia. Her father works in Hong Kong, so she's here to talk a little bit about uh, the protests being going on in Hong Kong and I guess just add a perspective of someone who's lived in mainland China and can give us a bit of insights in that way. So thanks for joining us. Sweet. Thank you so much. So... I suppose the other thing that's quite interesting, and it's been going on for years, but we've seen more of it recently, uh, is the the tone of reportage that greets uh, any kind of suggestion of 
you know, Chinese influence is a real buzzword at the moment here in Australia. You know, you can cast your mind back to Sam Dastiari. We've had the Gladys Liu events going on. There was this Four Corners last night that focused uh, very heavily on the research alliances that occur between uh, Australian universities and uh, Chinese technology companies. Uh, it was interesting that they, you know, were kind of presenting this as a serious threat to Australia's national security. They always trot out these these phrases, our national security is at risk, but nobody mentioned the many contracts with, you know, French uh, weapons manufacturer Thales or uh, Lockheed Martin, you know, uh, American spy bases. My understanding is we've had a lot to do with uh, the drone program that uh, the US has been uh, bombing the Middle East daily, you know, using uh, technologies developed here in Australia. But none of that was mentioned because obviously they're focusing on China and, and its role. Um, you know, they're trotting out people like Clive Hamilton. Hmm. Uh, well, I think, you know, if we all go all the way back and now, some of our loyal listeners might remember when we were hosting the uh, Monday Breakfast show and when Clive Hamilton's book, A Silent Invasion, came out and we had Dr. David Brophy, who's a senior lecturer in modern Chinese history in, at Sydney University, come in and speak. And, yeah, he was talking about, I guess, some of the real absurdity of what um, Clive is yeah. is trying to put forward has become mainstream ideas. And uh, at the time, it seemed like you know, surely nobody is going to read or, you know, take seriously things in Clive's book, which, you know, was struggled to get published. And I've never seen it really in any decent bookshops. You can get it cheap at Kmart, I think. But if you read his book, and I didn't, but if you read the excerpts from it, it seems, you know, it's this real Cold War language and really trying to drive a wedge that, you know, to be honest, has been happening in Australia for a long time about fear-mongering about, um, you know, Chinese investors taking property and that affecting the property market and things like that. But the big problem I think we're facing is that this has now seeped into the mainstream where the ABC, it's not just Four Corners this week, but um, background briefing, you know, a number of other parts of, you know, the ABC, let, let alone all of the, um, you know, more commercial networks are running this, you know, really anti-Chinese propaganda kind of thing about really it's Australian nationalism and we should be concerned because there's a, you know, I, I guess a perceived threat to, you know, the jingoism of, of Australian um, nationalism. Mm. I think it's also obviously the focus of the Four Corners investigation was about the rise in surveillance powers of China and it's being presented in this really uh, threatening way that you know that we hear a lot about the um, this what is it the social credit system um, that, that they've developed you know over the last few years to monitor people's behavior but I mean it's years since Edward Snowden uh, came out and revealed that members of the Five Eyes countries, which includes Australia, mm -hmm. along with New Zealand and Canada and the UK and the US, have been spying extensively on their own citizens. Uh, I thought it would be worthwhile uh, just playing a little bit of what Snowden did say the NSA was getting up to. This is from um, Laura Poitras's film Citizen Four, which came out in 2014, and the journalist interviewing Edward here is uh, Glenn Greenwald. NSA and the intelligence community in general uh, is focused on getting intelligence wherever it can by any means possible that it believes on the grounds of sort of a self-certification that they serve the national interest. Uh, originally we saw that uh, focus very narrowly tailored as foreign intelligence uh, gathered overseas. Now increasingly we see that it's happening domestically and to do that they, uh, the NSA specifically, 
targets the communications of everyone. It ingests them by default. It collects them in its system and it filters them and it analyzes them and it measures them and it stores them for periods of time simply because that's the easiest, most efficient, and most valuable way to achieve these ends. So while they may uh, be intending to uh, target someone associated with a foreign government or someone that they suspect of terrorism, they're collecting your communications to do so. Uh, any analyst at any time can target anyone, uh, any selector anywhere. Where those uh, communications will be picked up depends on the range of the sensor networks and the authorities that that analyst is uh, empowered with. Not all analysts have the ability to target everything, but I sitting at my desk uh, certainly had the authorities to, to wiretap anyone from you or your accountant to a federal judge to even the president if I had a personal email. So that's our biggest ally, you know, uh, who, you know, our, our national security is never at risk from U.S. intervention into our private lives. Um, and, we, you know, we're already hearing reports of, you know, to, I mean, from my perspective, you know, these are both large global powers who have an interest in controlling what people think and what they, knowing what people think and then controlling what they do. You know, I I, I think it, it's a, it's a, yeah, kind of, it's linked into the strategic aims of the U.S. for you know kind of combating a rising China as it itself is falling. That we are placed constantly bombarded with these messages of how threatening China is. When of course global stability is far more threatened by U.S. adventurism over the last 10, 15 years. Well, I think we only need to look at the role of Pine Gap, and you know obviously Pine Gap plays a really important and strategic role in the Five Eyes security network that you mentioned. And Snowden was just talking about then. You know, if you look at um, you know, Richard Tanter has written extensively on Pine Gap and his uh, article in the conversation a couple of years ago, he, he talks about some of the roles that, you know, from its role in the Cold War to as a, you know, more or less uh, kind of um, reactive kind of um, network to the role that it plays now. And he says, Pine Gap's primary mission then as now had both defensive and offensive characteristics relating to US nuclear war planning. It goes on, and I mean, um, people should look at um, Richard's website as well if they want to find out more about um, Pine Gap and some of the things in Australia. But, you know, what that shows, this is Australia playing a strategic role in supporting nuclear warfare. And, and on top of that, one of the things that Pine Gap is responsible for is the, um, you know, surveillance and implementation of drone attacks throughout the Middle East and, and through Africa as well. So... You know, we we saw if if anyone watched the the Four Corners debate, you talked to uh, Four Corners show. Some of the things raised in there were about, um, you know, some of the surveillance techniques and things being developed in you know collaboration with Australian universities between China and Australian um, academics. And I agree that is a concern, but it's just as much of a concern is the kind of role that Australia plays with the US in things like drone strikes. Yeah. Mm. Something I thought was funny about. Um the Four Corners doco was that all the concern about um, weapons research and weapons manufacturing with um, foreign powers was only around the research with China, not around how we help aid, you know, American companies, like as you said, Boeing um, yeah. and Turing, like all those huge companies that, you know, bomb crap out of, um, you know, Yemen and Syria and Palestine. Um, and, yeah, it's bad because it's a threat to Australia, not mm. because it's a threat to anyone else. 
We we saw, you know, um, or that are still building is that, um, you know, planned partnership with Melbourne Uni with um, companies like Raytheon and um, Boeing and things like that as well too. You know, essentially, and the funding comes not just from those U.S. weapons manufacturers, but from the U.S. government itself and through um, programs through the CIA and the FBI as well. They're working with, I mean, I think it, it is a huge problem that I wish that Four Corners and other, um, you know, the ABC and other news outlets would take seriously because mm-hmm. it's compromising, um, you know, funding and research and things like that where not, not you know, well, yeah, it compromises the kind of things that can happen but also makes those people, those universities, complicit in, in warfare, like you're saying. Mm. It's also very interesting at the moment in the broader dialogue how much time is spent i mean we've got to talk about the protests that happened in hong kong and the Mm. way that's been reported like obviously it's extremely inspiring to see a whole lot of young people out on the streets taking it up to an authoritarian regime asking for that regime uh, to get to grant them more freedoms that's great but the way that it's often been presented is that you know these pro-democracy is the the language that's often used you know Mm. with the implication being that the de- democracy is representative of Western liberal democracies who who support this breakaway from China, which of course distracts from the very aggressive, militaristic, imperialist behaviour of Western powers and kind of sets mm-hmm. up a false binary between the, the interests of China as a powerful state and the interests of Western liberal democracies as powerful states that have, you know, done terrible things to various populations and continue to do so, including Indigenous Australians here. You know, you mm-hmm. mentioned the Yemenis. But, you know, this... This presentation of what's happening in Hong Kong as like a microcosm of this clash of civilizations, I think, is mm. is false. Um, and you know, one way to see that is we've just had here in Melbourne, you know, a week of disruptive protests from Extinction Rebellion, uh, not in Melbourne, all up and down the, the eastern seaboard, you know, and all over the country. Mm. But you look at the way Palaszczuk in Queensland and Dutton in mm. Queensland are reacting to that. Uh, direct action, that action that disrupts uh, Mm. community in the same way that the action in Hong Kong is. I mean, they're calling for long prison sentences for anybody. They're they're trying to impose bail conditions like you can't talk to other members of this political group, which could be family members, could be, you know, it's it's pretty draconian. And this Mm -hmm. is just the tip of the iceberg. Like, imagine the way they would react if we shut down Tullamarine Airport for three Mm. weeks or even a few days. Like, the violence, I think, would be intense. So, you know... You know, don't cast stones when you're living in a glass house. You know, I don't. I don't think that here in Australia, we, you know, we are rolling out more surveillance, more yeah. uh, watching of people. You know, we we passed a law late last year to allow the government to access encrypted message services. You know, which yeah. you know they claim they're going to use it for terrorism, but we know that they consider environmental activists terrorists. terrorists yeah. Mm. So yeah, it's the same justification that they use to monitor Uyghurs. Um, that, you know, they're all domestic terrorists. And, um, you know, what what was interesting about, um, you know, since um, Hong Kong has really swung back into action in October and um, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government responded with the anti-masking law, mm. they actually referenced um, Canada as well as Australia's masking law mm. as a justification as, oh, they're a liberal democracy that has... Um, yeah, a repressive <laughs> laws against activists as well. So, like, why not we do it to protect the stability of our city? <coughs> and yeah. I think it, it was very clear that that was a anti-protest um, legislation that, that came in. I mean, I think, you know, you could probably say that there was certainly some aspects um, of 
you know, anti-Muslim uh, racism around some of the people that are calling for the um, illegal, you know, the legality around wearing a mask as well. But, you know, we've got anti-protest laws that, you know, we had in Victoria until recently. We have laws in Victoria um, where it's illegal to swear in public. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. Mm. You know, we if, when it came out a few years ago, we organised a, a swear-in on the steps of Parliament. And I think, you know, but it's yeah. absurd. And it is absurd. this is the kind mm. of, although, you know, although these laws aren't acted upon or enacted all the time, mm. it's they're still there and, and you know. Mm. They can absolutely be used against ac- activists um, mm. in Australia. And I don't know, I was at one of the XR... Um, demonstrations when we marched down, um, yeah, where we were having our swarm, which was inspired by Hong Kong, actually, of not just, you know, in Hong Kong, they um, often note the failure of the Umbrella Revolution in 2014 is, oh, we were too static, like we weren't, um, an occupation can't last very long. Um, so that's why they have this um, be like water slogan mm-hmm. um, where they yeah literally just every time they see the cops like run away <laughs> somewhere else yeah harder to target harder yeah. to corral by the police it and seems it, really effective how did it go so at the XR swarm great it was awesome because the cops just <laughs> never knew where we were going mm. um, and just had to yeah just chase after us the whole time and um, I made a speech um, there about how you know students in XR really want to stand in solidarity with Hong Kong because all these repressive laws um, that, you know, Palaszczuk is proposing um, are exactly the same as Carrie Lam's. It's just we don't have the same movement in Australia as Hong Kong does where every time this happens it's just the most outrageous thing. Um, Yeah, yeah. I wonder, um, Matt, if you maybe had to just um, we shift a little bit to talk about some of your experience of, of living in China and, mm. you know, then, you know, I guess maybe comparing, you know, just talking a bit about that and then maybe we can touch on, I guess, you know, how some of the more recent debates affect, um, you know, the kind of racism and stuff that we talked about, how that might, um, you know, affect people that are experiencing that. Yeah, um, so I grew up in... China from the age of five to 15. Um, and I only, I didn't go to a public um, Chinese state school. I went to a um, private international school where most of my teachers were American. Um, and um, a lot of the student body was from all different countries across the world. You know, mostly like middle up to upper middle class um uh, people. So it was, it was an interesting experience where I was, you know, I'm, I'm half Chinese. Um, but there was this like, um, different ex like expats are treated as a totally different, (laughs) um, class altogether, sort of, um, you know, you are completely, um, sectioned off from the rest of Chinese society expats don't really mingle with other like ordinary working class people that sort of thing um so yeah I I was between two worlds a little bit Mm. um I wonder how that's enforced just from the class difference as well because Mm. it's arguable that 
that at a base level that happens here in Australia too, that people from more middle, upper middle class backgrounds don't mingle without intentionally with people who are working class. Or do you think, did you feel that was more intentional from the, from the Chinese state to kind of keep uh, the classes apart in that sense? I think it was just the, you know, language barrier, honestly. And, you know, people like teachers usually would only stay on their campuses. Um, um, Students are mostly just around the campuses and people, you're not really encouraged to learn Mandarin (laughs) the same way that, you know, um, like you take a class once a week, but if you're not actually talking to people every day, Mm. you're not actually ever going to learn the language. Mm. Um, And, you know, it's so different, the expectations, whereas if you're an immigrant here in Australia, and of course, like people moving from Australia to China are called an expat. But when (laughs) you're moving from China to Australia, you're called an immigrant. Um, Mm. You're expected to um, learn the language. Mm. Yeah, you're not supposed to. Like a lot of the criticisms of, you know, Chinese international students is they all like stay isolated in their own little groups and they don't want to learn English. And it's like, well, I don't know. Why why should they? Like um, it's... um, yeah, they're going to be more comfortable around people who speak their own language and, of course, like they experience so much racism <laughs> on campus as well. They're also studying at a tertiary level in English for the mm. most part, so I think a lot of these accusations <coughs> are fairly misplaced. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> to be frank. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the... I don't know if you followed the story at Monash University where they changed the laws around student elections at the last minute to stop <laughs> international students from voting. Like anyone who couldn't work more than 20 hours a week was banned from voting in the yeah, elections. Yeah, it wasn't voting. It was, was running, running a- in the yeah in the elections, which was, yeah, completely f- It was just the most um, outrageously racist, cynical, just playing off this new like yellow peril, Cold War attitude like they would not have been able to do that if that already didn't exist in Australia Mm. um it's just it was just a cynical um way to get votes um away from international students yeah and especially at a place where the international students are 50 percent of the student body that's a significant amount of the vote you'd think they should be represented but Mm. no yeah Mm. totally You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. I think, you know, we saw 1996, Pauline Hanson gave her famous Mm. introduction to Parliament where she said that, you know, Australia was in danger of being swamped by Asians. And Mm. I think, you know, that speech has rightly been held up as a real symbol of Australian racism and um, Australian nationalism, you know, and I think that it was um, interesting. And I I think that that point in time, you know, it, it really spurred a lot of the kind of, I guess, the, the racism and hatred towards um, Asian people living in Australia and mm. um, and also galvanised a lot of um, racists as well behind Pauline Hanson and One Nation. We've seen, uh, I guess, a real re-emergence of some of that in mm. more recent times with far-right groups. And I know you've had some involvement with um, CAF as well. Mm. And, you know, I mean, we could speak about 
you know, that kind of rise of, of populism and the far right in Australia and the impact it has on, you know, Asian communities and, and you know, other other people who are being targeted by that. Totally. Yeah. Like when I when I first moved to Australia, um, it was it was just like being hit with a ton of bricks of racism because I never experienced um, systematic racism before in my life. Um, and honestly, it wasn't even racism that I personally experienced, but just how normalised racism was across all s- certain different kinds of ethnic groups. Like I th- when I moved here, I thought it was just common sense to believe that, you know, Indigenous people were oppressed and that was bad. <laughs> like, but, you know, on the, you know, at school, in high school, it was just this thing of people trying to convince me like, oh, you know, they're all like alcoholics or whatever and me just being like what like where is this coming from like Mm. obviously that's wrong um you know as well as islamophobia is so huge like you know when I moved here um and you know I, I actually saw some of that in China as well um where there'd be reports because even though I was in a expatriate sort of whatever like we wouldn't get news about Uyghur oppression either because obviously Western press doesn't give a shit about it until um yeah um and you know we'd hear in the news um Muslims in China (coughs) blow up a certain area or whatever they're terrorists and um when actually it was that those reports came out because of protests um Uyghurs um, protesting against their oppression. The way they're being treated, yeah. Yeah, fighting against, fighting for national liberation, yeah. It'll come as no surprise to you then that some of the techniques that the Chinese state are using to monitor Uyghurs in um, mm. the far west of the country are about to be deployed in the Northern Territory. Uh, there's an article published in uh, The Conversation wow. in May of this year, which is... Uh, suggesting that the city of Darwin will begin with it, uh, is going to start monitoring the way that uh, people use uh, Wi-Fi, um, uh. you know, under under the, you know, the very um, friendly guise of like just testing where they need to install new Wi-Fi networks. But it's yeah. going to be, um, you know, very open, this policy. They're also going to be uh, investing huge amounts of money in new CCTV networks that actually, you know, do biometric facial recognition so they can mm. uh, actually track the locations of people within communities and therefore, you know, under the guise of, oh, we'll, we'll send more services to these areas. Mm. But, you know, you know, considering the incarceration rates of Indigenous Australians and the ways that, you know, misplaced paternalism, misplaced care has been used to abuse yeah. these communities for generations that it's doubtless that, you know, that these technologies will be used to control and curtail the movements of people just as they are mm. in the west of China. Mm. Um, That's horrific. It's like the what's so funny about the Four Corners documentary, it doesn't um, actually talk about how complicit and how active Australia is in um, you know, importing basically these um, uh, surveillance technologies because the reason that China can advance um, these technologies so quickly is because they don't have to pretend (laughs) they're a democracy. They can quite in the open um, do research and, um, you know, they're very proud of the um, hyper-advanced surveillance technology and Australia really wants to cash in on that. They... um, 
yeah, it's just, yeah, completely hypocritical. I think one of the things that, you know, people like to roll out within, um, you know, the context of this kind of thing is talking about Tiananmen Square and how, mm. you know, no one knew about it and it's been hidden. And I just can't help but think, you know, in, in listening and, and reading things about that over the last kind of few weeks is what about in Australia where we were taught, like Maddie was saying before, we were not just by um, people who are a bit racist, but we literally taught in schools until recently that Aboriginal people were not here when they were, when um, you know Captain Cook came and kicked people off their off their land. Yeah, yeah. Tony Abbott said at a major press conference a few years ago. Yep, John Howard Europeans arrived and there was nothing. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's just bewildering that we can you know people can feel like we are not having the same issues here. Mm. And I think, you know, I think it's important to say that there's a lot of what China's doing which I don't agree with. And, you know, I think yes. a lot of the, you know, the rise of militarism, the conflict in the South China Sea, you know, all of these kind of things I think are a big problem. Surveillance, you know, being able to develop surveillance where you can pick a person out who's an alleged criminal from 60,000 people oh, yeah. at a soccer match. Mm. I think those things are terrifying. Mm. But we, They're terrifying in everyone's hands. Yeah. Not just this, you know, this constant othering, I think, is being mm. used to prepare us for further conflict. Look, mm. we've run out of time. Maddie, thanks oh, so yeah. much for joining us today. No worries. Uh, we're actually going to continue this conversation next fortnight as well. We're going to talk more about this. But I thought um, I'd go out with a little bit of music from a Chinese band. There's a band called mm-hmm. Hedgehog, and the track is called the band. Thanks for listening to Uprise Radio. Bye. Bye.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.